The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association of Anatomists. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, are you feeling under pressure? I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, a senior lecturer in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hypertension, commonly known as high blood pressure, is a very common disease. In fact, it is likely that every one of you listening today would know someone with hypertension. Today we will be discussing claims that eating purple sweet potatoes can slash your risk of hypertension. But first, we'll discuss what hypertension is and why it is an important health issue with our interdisciplinary team. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm John Bertram. I'm a professor in the Department of Anatomy and Developmental Biology at Monash University. My research focuses on kidney development and how abnormalities in kidney development can lead to hypertension in adult life. Hi, my name's Kate Denton and I'm a cardiovascular physiologist. Hi, my name's Jamie Carey. I'm a doctor in Melbourne. Hi, my name's Tiffany and I'm a medical student at Monash University. Before we dive right into hypertension, we should explain blood pressure. Every living person has a measurable blood pressure, which is basically the force within blood vessels as blood is flowing through, just like the pressure of water flowing through a garden hose. Can you tell us about how to measure blood pressure? The hose analogy is a very good example, Tiffany. If you think of a narrow hose or a constricted hose, the pressure is pretty high. But if you think of a looser hose where it's just dripping out, that's sort of the difference in blood pressure. The size of the blood vessels can be controlled. We can't consciously decide how fast blood flows through them, but we do have a system known as the autonomic system, specifically the sympathetic nerves, that can control the size of those blood vessels. The blood vessels are pipes. So the pump, the heart, initiates blood flow to the pipes. We actually measure the pressure within the pipes, however, not within the heart. The heart, because it's a pump, has a high pressure and a low pressure. The high pressure is when it's pumping blood away into the body, and the lower pressure is between that pumping period. We call the highest pressure in this system the systolic pressure, and the lowest pressure the diastolic pressure. The systolic pressure generally correlates to when the ventricles and the heart are contracting, and the diastolic pressure usually correlates to when the ventricles and the heart are relaxing. We can measure these two numbers and they can be a surrogate marker for risk of certain diseases. When you go to the doctor, you'll have your blood pressure taken and they'll measure the systolic and the diastolic pressure. They can measure this using a device called a sphygmomanometer. They'll attach a blood pressure cuff to your arm and listen for sounds called Korsakoff sounds to hear the change in flow through a major blood vessel in your arm. So in this case, they're measuring the pipes, not the pump. That's right. What would be considered a normal blood pressure? There's a range of what's considered a healthy or normal blood pressure. Normal is approximately 120 to 129 millimeters of mercury systolic, 
over 80 to 84 millimeters of mercury diastolic. When you hear your blood pressure told to you by a doctor, you'll hear one number first, which is the systolic, that's the highest pressure in your blood, and then you'll hear the second number, which is the diastolic, which is the lowest pressure in your blood. You've just told us what the normal ranges of blood pressure are, but how do we define when someone's hypertensive, and how do we classify that? In adults, someone's considered to be hypertensive if they have an elevated blood pressure. There are different classifications of hypertension, but in Australia, we consider if someone has a systolic pressure of 140 to 159 over a diastolic pressure of 90 to 99, they would be considered to have grade 1 hypertension, also known as mild hypertension. In the US, recently, they've changed the classifications to make hypertension is now defined as 130 systolic blood pressure, which has significantly lowered the cutoff for being defined as hypertensive. It's meant that in the US now, they've almost doubled the number of people that are being classified as hypertension. This is because at these lower or pre-hypertensive levels, it's thought that it's important that people start to take action earlier to prevent it going even higher. That's interesting. I wonder if we'll have the same change here soon. I think we have the same sort of system and I don't think they'll change it in the near future because we already take it into account. We call it pre-hypertension at that stage. I think in the US though where they're really trying to drive home the message that you need to act early that they've decided to classify as hypertension so that people will respond. We check blood pressure on multiple occasions because blood pressure is a dynamic process and it will vary throughout the day and depending on your diet and other factors. We often double check this with multiple doctor visits, with multiple measurements, or with a 24-hour ambulatory measurement of a patient's blood pressure, and that can happen outside of the clinic. So there are a few reasons why we use a 24-hour mobile blood pressure measurement. One reason is that some patients get a higher blood pressure when they're in the doctor's clinic. A mobile measurement of someone's blood pressure is a better indicator of their risk factor for a few diseases than the blood pressure they have when they're under stress in the doctor's clinic. So is that higher blood pressure you talk about in the doctor's clinic, is that what they call white coat hypertension? Yeah, that's exactly right. We've been talking about how hypertension is very common. What does this actually translate into in numbers of people who have hypertension? Close to 6 million people in Australia aged 18 and over, that's 34% have high blood pressure, which means that their systolic is over 140 or their diastolic is over 90, or they take medication for high blood pressure. Out of these people, 68% have unmanaged hypertension, meaning they don't take any medication. That adds up to 4 million Australians. This proportion of people with uncontrolled blood pressure is higher with increasing age. It's also more common in low income than higher income households and more common in regional than metropolitan areas. That's very interesting. That means that in Australia, about one in three people are hypertensive, but also that hypertension affects the elderly much more than the young, and that once you reach the age of 75 or older, six in 10 people will be hypertensive. One in three, that means two of us in this room are likely to have hypertension, but we wouldn't know unless we'd actually been to the doctor because there's no signs and symptoms of having hypertension. Is that right? That's exactly right. So next time you go to your doctor, make sure you get your blood pressure checked. Why is it that people in lower income households and who are living in more regional and remote areas have higher incidences of hypertension? There are a few reasons why there could be higher rates of hypertension in low income and regional areas. One reason is that there's less access to healthcare. 
And like you mentioned, Tiffany, you can't tell whether you're hypertensive unless you've had your blood pressure measured at a doctor. Other things that have to be considered if you've got a lower income is that you can't afford the same healthy foods, and this can affect health and blood pressure. And this is also common in the States and referred to often as food deserts, where you don't have access to healthy, nutritious food and vegetables. So lifestyle and diet are clearly big risk factors for developing hypertension. Are there any other risk factors that we should know about? So there are a lot of risk factors that promote the increase in blood pressure and therefore hypertension. At the moment, we don't really know the causes of what drives high blood pressure. In 95% of the cases, we have very little idea. In only 5% of the cases of people that have hypertension, is there an identifiable cause? In the other 95%, we don't know. Having said that, we have very good treatments to lower blood pressure, drugs that affect different hormonal systems in the body and that can bring blood pressure down. But the actual cause is still not very clearly defined. We certainly know that it involves the kidney. And that's because we know that the kidneys control blood pressure. They control how much blood volume is in the body and that links to blood pressure. Of all the known causes of hypertension, the kidneys are nearly always identified as the culprit. There are a few monogenetic forms of hypertension and they all involve defects in the kidney where different transporters result in excess accumulation of salt and water in the body and an increase in blood pressure. And so we don't know the causes, but we do know many of the risk factors that increase the chances. And so that includes physical inactivity, obesity, alcohol. If you have a family history of hypertension, you're more likely to be hypertensive as you age as well. Diet, as we've already spoken about, and what we haven't mentioned is salt or sodium is also a big risk factor for causing increases in blood pressure. Yes, Kate's told us about some of the the very well-known risk factors, many of which we've known for a long time. We've learnt in the last 10 or 20 years that low birth weight and prematurity are also linked to higher risk of hypertension in postnatal life and particularly in adult life. This is a bit of a strange idea that perhaps events before we're even born can affect our risk of chronic diseases such as hypertension decades later. A lot of people also talk about how they think stress is a big cause of high blood pressure. Is there much truth in that statement? I think it depends on how you define stress. People, when they say, oh, I'm very stressed, life is really hard, I have a lot of stress in my life, are talking about a natural physiological phenomena. Everybody has stress and responds to it. When medically we're talking about stress causing hypertension, we mean you have an abnormal response, that your stress hormones are higher than they should be than normal. And so that can drive hypertension. But just because you feel that you have a stressed lifestyle does not mean that you will become hypertensive. It seems like hypertension is a pretty complex disease and a lot of what causes it may not be yet known, but there are some things that we can do to regulate it. It also seems that there may be impacts from before birth as well as a relationship between the kidney and hypertension. We've got a good understanding of the basics around hypertension now, but can you please tell us a little bit more about the relationship between the kidneys and blood pressure? The kidney controls blood pressure because it controls blood volume. And so the kidney regulates how much salt and water we excrete, and it 
almost exquisitely matches what you eat and drink in terms of salt and water every day and excretes everything you don't need. And by doing this, maintains extracellular fluid, uh, blood volume, uh, normal um, in the body, which maintains the normal blood pressure. So there are many mechanisms that help the kidney do this. The autonomic nervous system or the sympathetic nerves regulate blood pressure by driving the kidney at need to increase how much salt and water they retain in the body. It's one of the ways in which the kidneys thought that it may drive hypertension is that by overactivity of these sympathetic nerves, it drives the kidney to increase or retain too much salt and water, which increases blood pressure. There's certainly a lot of evidence to show that if you cut the nerves or destroy the nerves going to the kidney, you can treat hypertension. Is there a limit to how much salt the kidneys can excrete, which links into why having a high salt diet is bad? I don't think there have been any studies that actually just have shown there's a limit to how much salt you can eat. Certainly in the Western world, we eat far more than we need. And it is suggested that having a high salt diet can increase your blood pressure. And experimentally, that has been shown to be true, though different people are more susceptible to high salt than some others. So some people have great increase in blood pressure when they have too much salt. Other people are able to get rid of it more effectively. This may suggest that their kidneys are behaving slightly differently. There is a big drive to lower how much salt everyone eats in the hope that that will reduce blood pressure on a population basis. And certainly lot of evidence to suggest that that's true. However, there has been a very recent trial released from the US which has looked at lowering salt in the diet in the Framingham cohort study and they've shown that very low salt intake increases blood pressure. And so it's more complicated than just salt. And while we've been talking about salt, what we've been meaning is sodium. There is now a fair bit of evidence to suggest that potassium is also very important because when we lower our salt diet, we also lower our potassium diet. And diets that are high in potassium tend to be blood pressure lowering. So the kidneys are really important in controlling how much salt and therefore how much water and therefore what blood pressure is in the body. But our kidneys are not the same in all of us. How they grow in utero is really important. We can have different size kidneys and that can affect function. You're right, Kate. The units or the individual units in our kidneys that filter the blood and purify our blood are known as nephrons. And each nephron consists of a little filter at one end that filters the blood and then a, a tubule that moderates and comes up with the final urine that we excrete from our body. For many years, it was thought that human kidneys contained one million nephrons each, and that was in all the textbooks that one read and one used. But research in the last 10 to 20 years has shown, in fact, nephron number varies enormously in the population, perhaps tenfold or so, from perhaps as few as 200,000 nephrons per kidney to more than 2 million. Now, you might think, well, if I've got a low number of nephrons, I can just make some more. And many of our organs can make new cells and repair and regenerate. But in fact, after we're born, we can't make more nephrons. So if our nephron number at birth or our endowment, as we call it, is low, that's a permanent low endowment. That's a permanent deficit. And that will influence how we can handle and regulate water and electrolyte and salt and ultimately secretion. So it all comes back again in part to this issue of life before birth and maternal health and fetal development, birth weight and prematurity that I mentioned before. Something like 15% of babies worldwide are born with low birth weight. 
and 10% of babies worldwide are born premature. So if low birth weight and prematurity and fetal development is a risk factor, and it's been shown to be for hypertension, then a lot of our children are born actually with this predisposition and this risk. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get hypertension. So for those of you listening to this podcast, if you know you were born with a low birth weight, there's no reason to particularly panic. But it is something to perhaps discuss with your doctor. And we're learning more too about how, for example, the match or the mismatch between our postnatal nutritional environment and our nutritional environment before we were born can also be a predisposing factor. So there's the idea that if we're born small or premature, but we kind of stay small, then that's a match. That's a good match between the the fetal development and our adult body size. If we're born larger and stay on the large side, maybe that's okay. What is a problem is if we're born small and then in a postnatal world of excess nutrition and availability to high calorie foods, we put on excess weight or cross growth curves and growth percentiles, then that mismatch, the kidney hasn't prepared itself for that environment. It didn't develop itself that way, kind of predicting our postnatal life. And that is definitely a problem that exists and a problem that can be, in fact, modified through diet and exercise and so forth. So are you inferring that being born at a higher birth weight is actually better because perhaps you'd have more nephrons in your kidneys? Yes, what I said does kind of suggest that and tend to suggest that. However, the evidence shows that what you really want is a normal birth weight, which is defined as between 2.5 kilos and 4 kilos. Higher risk of hypertension is associated with low birth weight and also with high birth weight. And what we're seeing at the moment, particularly with increasing rates of diabetes in pregnancy or gestational diabetes, is that a lot of those children are born large and born with a birth weight greater than 4 kilograms. And this has been shown, as I say, to be associated with increased risk of a number of chronic diseases, including hypertension. No human study yet has actually assessed nephron number in diabetic pregnancies. So that is something that the jury is still out on. Could be about that the number isn't there. Again, just because numbers are low or high doesn't necessarily mean those nephrons are perfect and in perfect working order. So we don't know the answer to that yet. So how do you count nephrons? That's a good question. At the moment, we need a piece of tissue from a kidney or the whole kidney obtained at autopsy to try to count the nephrons using microscopic sections or microscopic slides. So clearly those techniques are not appropriate for estimating nephron numbers in patients. However, there is a great interest in trying to develop non-invasive and safe technologies for counting nephrons in patients or patients believed to be at risk of hypertension. For example, premature babies, low birth weight babies, obese patients, etc., etc. In November 2017, the first paper was published from Kevin Bennett and his colleagues at the University of Hawaii that imaged and counted nephrons in a living animal using magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. I think this is a huge step forward. We're not there in humans yet, but I expect within the next decade, we will be able for the first time to image and count nephrons or glomeruli, these filters, in living patients. And I'm sure that will become part of clinical practice for subsets of patients. How do you think that that will translate into kind of practical clinical changes in treatments, I suppose? 
not every patient, not every human being is going to have an MRI of their kidneys, obviously. This is expensive and specialised technology. However, I think there's a great interest in examining, for example, the nephron endowment, as I say, in low birth weight or premature babies. It doesn't have to be done the day they're born, but perhaps in their first few years of life. So on their file, almost in red, if you will, on their clinical record, here is the birth weight. This was the gestational age this child was born. This is their nephron count. If it's very low, the doctor will think, right, every time I see this child, I need to just check their urine for a microalbuminuria, just check their blood pressure. It kind of puts a bit of a flashing light that this is a child we need to look at carefully. Hypertension, as we've talked about before, is a silent disease, if you will. You're not going to know about it until it's measured by a healthcare professional. But we can, you know, subsets of patients at perceived risk, monitor them more quickly and perhaps pick this up years and years earlier than we currently pick it up now. And we can do something about that with the medications. This probably has greater repercussions than just low birth weight as well, because of course, given that the kidney plays such an important role in blood pressure and even healthy people born with normal nephron number can lose nephrons. It's well known that anyone who has kidney disease will eventually develop hypertension. And if you have hypertension, eventually you will develop kidney disease. And so it becomes a vicious cycle where you lose more and more of these nephrons. The MRI technique will mean that you can measure nephron number serially. And so I will be able to tell how fast you're losing nephrons with your disease. And the faster you lose them, the worse your outcomes will be. And it's about halting that loss of nephrons. The kidneys clearly play a critical role in hypertension. If we can't change nephron number and we can't predict who is going to get hypertension, what can we do once it's diagnosed? Like you mentioned, hypertension is normally a lifelong or chronic disease. So it's important to confirm that a measurement is not just a one-off because blood pressure varies and that it's not due to a separate treatable condition, which is the case about 5% of the time. The National Heart Foundation sets treatment goals for blood pressure. In most cases, where antihypertensives are indicated, the aim will be to reduce the blood pressure to below about 140 over 90. There are exceptions with other medical problems such as coronary artery disease, diabetes, and kidney disease where you'd have a different blood pressure aim. For all patients, you'd be looking at non-pharmacologic treatments to work in tandem with drug therapy. These include regular exercise, reduction of alcohol intake, cessation of smoking, reducing weight in overweight patients, and moderate sodium restriction. The main goal of drug management of hypertension is to prevent long-term complications such as cardiovascular disease, heart failure, and kidney disease. In many cases, clinicians will consider a patient's absolute cardiovascular risk to determine whether antihypertensive medication should be commenced. We usually use a stepwise approach to managing hypertension, initially giving a patient one medication and trialing a low dose, monitoring for adverse effects, and often eventually two or more medications are needed to adequately control hypertension. Different medications may be beneficial in different populations, and different medications have different side effects, which are worse for certain patients with conditions like asthma. People don't like taking multiple drugs. I'd much rather just take one. Why is it recommended that you take multiple classes of drugs rather than just one? That's a good point. Patients often don't like taking more than one medication when only one's needed. The reason we often give two medications rather than one is because you can achieve the same control of blood pressure with less side effects. And this is because you're using two different medications at a lower dose than a single medication at a higher dose. Yeah, that's exactly right. So why is hypertension bad so for hypertension's you? bad because 
when that high blood pressure hits the very fine blood vessels in your organs, it causes damage. You get scarring and this means that the organs start to fail and you can have heart failure, kidney failure or stroke and that's the outcome of having hypertension for long periods of time and so we need to treat it. So we use two different medications at lower doses and is that because those two medications are different classes or work on different yes, pathways? Yes, that is how they work. And so we use drugs that target different systems that control how the kidneys retain salt and water. We can use classes of drugs called renin-angiotensin inhibitors, so the ACE inhibitors, the angiotensin receptor blockers, and they block that system and increase how much salt and water the kidneys excrete and also cause vasodilation or opening up of blood vessels to drop blood pressure. You can target the kidneys by using diuretic agents. These cause the nephron, the tubule part where sodium is being reabsorbed, it blocks the reabsorption of salt and water and so you excrete more. Other classes include beta blockers or calcium antagonists and these act directly on blood vessels to cause vasodilation. So by opening up the blood vessels, pressure is reduced. These drugs on their own are not often very effective antihypertensives because the kidney then normally in response to that lowering of blood pressure, the kidneys reset and start to increase salt and water. So normally used in combination with other drugs. So briefly to cover the class of antihypertensives, I remember them using mnemonic ABCD. A stands for ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. B stands for beta blockers. C stands for calcium channel blockers. And D stands for diuretics. Together, these different classes of drugs affect that pump and pipe pathway, either by regulating how much fluid is released into the pipes and the diameter and size of the pipes. So as a group, we use them in combination to have the greatest effect on the pump and pipe pathway. So after you've been started on antihypertensive medications and been taking them for a while, does that mean you're cured of hypertension? Not really. That's a bit of a common misconception with a lot of medications, that once you get control of your blood pressure or your symptoms with other medications, that you're cured. So antihypertensives decrease your blood pressure. Generally, people have to stay on antihypertensives for life. A very small group of patients are able to alter their modifiable lifestyle factors and able to stop taking their antihypertensive medications. Remember that we use antihypertensive medications to decrease the overall risk of cardiovascular disease rather than just treating the number. So we're treating the symptoms and not necessarily the underlying cause of disease because most of the time it's unknown. That's right. Coming back to purple sweet potatoes, how do they link in with treating hypertension? There is clinical evidence that you can modify blood pressure with diet. There are certain vegetable products that are very high in nitrates. And nitrates produce nitric oxide, which is a blood vessel dilator. And so they lower blood pressure. Beetroot has a lot of nitrates. And so there has been clinical trials looking at how much beetroot you have to eat to lower blood pressure. It's suggested that you have to drink about 500 mils a day to lower blood pressure by about 5 to 10 millimetres mercury. This study is, so that's not a major decrease in blood pressure, but it's significant. However, I feel that I might turn purple if I have to drink 500 mils of beetroot every day. And it may be that we can extract the active agent from beetroot in the future and use some of these as new drugs. Otherwise, Aussies are in a good start because you guys put beetroot on everything.
What an interesting discussion on hypertension. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening to the Ask Anatomist podcast this season. We're going to take a short break over the Southern Hemisphere summer and the Northern Hemisphere winter and return for season two in March of 2019. See you then. And as always, relationships matter, at least the anatomical ones. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag anatq.